Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Who is bringing the listeners this episode? Okay. So this episode is brought to you by Miniflix, a premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, uh, TIFF, that's the Toronto International Film Festival, heard of uh, it. and many more. Heard of it? Oh, you're about to be well acquainted with it. Yeah, I'm heading, heading over there. Very exciting. Um, I emailed our friend uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Woodcock from Toronto. He emailed today, let him know I was coming to town. How's he doing? He hasn't gotten back to me yet. Oh, all right. <laughs> Sounds like someone's asleep at the wheel. Uh, but anyway, so these films uh, premiere at these various uh, film festivals, uh, and you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. So this week we're talking about the 2012 film Pentecost, Ireland, 1977. I don't know why I said it like that. This is a, a, apparently a delightful comedy, uh, not <laughs> Dragnet. Um so young Damien is called in at the last moment to serve as an altar boy at an important mass at his local parish. The last time he served, he accidentally knocked the priest off the altar, resulting in a three-month ban from his parents from the thing that Damien loves best, which is football. What's more, Damien's team, Liverpool FC, it is that football club, I would yep. assume, yeah, yep. uh, is playing in its first European Cup final in two weeks. Damien's father gives him the opportunity to see Liverpool play if he serves the mass correctly. This film was nominated for an Academy Award. It is a delightful and irreverent comedy. So once again, that is Pentecost. Uh, new films are being added each month, and you can watch these incredible award-winning short films anytime, anywhere, on any streaming device for only three ninety-nine a month. Or as a Battleship Pretension listener, you can get a free 30-day trial of commercial free award-winning short films just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the mini flicks banner at the bottom to redeem the special offer okay let's talk about what we watched all right um sorry i'm checking work emails okay uh yeah seems an odd choice well i i think the uh the connected life sure that we're all living now means that I may work nine to six, but really I work yeah. 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I got to get back to him on that. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, uh, I'll jump right in. Okay. So, so you're, you're, you three and then one, three and then one. Yep. Okay. Yep. We didn't uh, discuss it beforehand. Sorry. Usually yeah, I, know, I did the math in my head okay. because it was easier. To okay. Uh, so let's start off going all the way back to the silent era. I watched the 1926 film flesh and the devil. Okay. Which is a Greta Garbo, uh, film stands to reason. Um, uh, it's about two, uh, two blokes. Well, I shouldn't say blokes. They're two, uh, German guys. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the movie, um, has a lot of fun i think kind of poking fun at germans i think this is after you know obviously after world war one something of an easy target uh, easy target <laughs> at the time yeah it pokes fun at the german language specifically where it uh, like the t- inner titles will be a german word that is because the germans do have a tendency to make compound words out of like we make two or three word compound you know we say mm. doghouse that's one word sure. whatever the germans will take like an entire uh, sentence right. worth of words and make it just one compound word so they mm. there are these inner titles in german that'll be like run on sentences but then most of the inner titles that are in, in english um that's funny yeah so it uh it, it has some fun at the sake of the german language mm-hmm. um at the expense of the german language is what i meant to say so anyway, it's just two friends uh one of them um falls in love with a woman played by uh, Greta Garbo. Okay. Right? Uh, and then her, um, 
her husband, hold on, someone might tell me I'm getting this wrong. Her husband catches them, like, you know, making woo or whatever. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, is that what you do? Do you, make, do you pitch woo? Is that what, if you're flirting with a gal, I see. do you pitch woo? Uh, I think so. It's yeah. like I'm, I'm pitching some major woo so right he's now. He's pitching woo at her, lighting her cigarette. Uh, it's a famous sort of shot. You've mm-hmm. probably seen it. Because uh, apparently the actor was not holding a lighter; he was actually holding a lamp to make it like hmm. look super bright. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, it's a beautiful shot. Uh, there's so many beautiful shots in this movie, and Greta Garbo is uh, absolutely stunning. But anyway, he um, he gets challenged to a duel by her mm-hmm. husband or Bo or whoever the guy okay. is, and then he kills the guy and then has to flee because duels are illegal, and he just killed somebody. Oh. <laughs> so he like lives abroad for a while, comes back, and only to find that his best friend is now married to Greta Garbo Ugh. and they're like bodies just start stacking up <laughs> I'm not going to tell you where it goes from there okay. yes and no on that count okay um, but uh, it's really really terrific and really really beautiful um, it's got a lot of that sort of uh, you know silent era uh, uh, halo framing of like Greta Garbo you know mm. the light behind oh, her yeah. and like um, and that stuff, but then the actual there are things like the um, like the actual duel itself that seem to take place almost in a surreal space with a complete like it's a distant shot where you can see both of them in silhouette on the horizon mm-hmm. and a kind of pure white it's a black and white movie obviously yeah. pure white sky uh, not obviously it's not tinted or at least the version right. that I watched isn't I feel uh, like they stopped doing that like by the twenties I feel like I don't yeah. s- I didn't see it very you didn't see, you don't see it as often as you did and like I guess that's true yeah the, the aughts and the and the teens yeah I guess that's true because um, by this point they're making so many prints because movies are a big right. business now right yeah they don't have time to tint every print right Exi- right yes and that's it was a big campaign they yeah. had at the time uh, rhyming like that um i feel like the most recent one that i know of like nosferatu did it and that's okay. 22 okay and there there probably are later examples but that's the most recent one i can think of anyway i'm sorry go on uh no that's all right um so I don't want to get too much uh, further into it, but it's a, a sort of classic love story melodrama that's absolutely beautifully shot, and um, uh, it it moves along uh, at, a, at a great clip. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to a new movie that I saw. Uh, I'm not under embargo, uh, thank God, although I probably should be because the movie is not very good. Okay. <laughs> I saw Rupert Everett's directorial debut, The Happy Prince, okay. in which he plays Oscar Wilde. Yeah, um, I saw a trailer for this and it looked interesting. Well, uh, what is interesting about it, and yeah, it's not terrible. What is interesting about it is that um, all of the stuff that Oscar Wilde is known for, like the fame and the mm-hmm. plays and then the uh, being charged with gross indecency for being homosexual and, and right. doing two years in prison. All that, we see a little, like, very, very brief flashbacks of that. Mm-hmm. But the movie takes place after he gets out of prison. It's, it's the, like the last ten years of his life okay. when he was uh, often broke and destitute and not writing anymore um, and just getting sicker and sicker. Um and I, I think, I mean, Rupert Everett is a, a really fantastic uh, actor in in terms of uh, in terms of this kind of role. He, I, I think he's a mm-hmm. um, 
he's a he's a showy actor. I don't want to say he's an over actor. Right. Uh, he has a very specific type of on screen charm. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think he uses that uh, that well here. But I also feel like the movie's a bit too aggrandizing. Sure. Of Oscar Wilde, almost treating him as a Christ figure. In fact, I would say by the end, it comes down pretty. It, yeah. It's pretty much that. And then I also worry that this is that Rupert Everett sees a bit too much of himself in Oscar Wilde. And therefore this isn't just aggrandizing. It's a self aggrandizing. Sure. Sure. He is comparing himself to this, uh, great artist who was pilloried in his time. No. Um, and I, I, I'd see a little bit too much of that poking through, Mm -hmm. but you've got, um, uh, it's really Rupert Everett's movie. You've got, um, uh, a rotating cast of in, including some big names like Colin Firth uh, is in a handful of scenes. Emily Watson comes and goes. Uh, you've got um, Tom Wilkinson shows up for essentially right. an extended cameo. It's like a two scene. Uh, hmm. If this were a better movie, he'd be a, definitely a <laughs> yeah, contender yeah. for the BP award for best performance under 15 minutes. Um, also Ronald pickup is in it. Um, I don't think I know who that is. He played Neville Chamberlain last year in oh, yes. Darkest Hour. Okay. But he's been in movies for okay. forever. He's a, a, a well-seasoned gentleman at this point, um, but he's terrific. Uh, so, yeah, you've got, I mean, it's not a movie that's boring to watch. It's just I think it's a little bit insulting to the intelligence, uh, and it's definitely way too full of itself. Hmm. But you, I mean, you've got a good cast kind of playing to the rafters it's like i said it's not unfun to watch yeah uh i I just find myself rolling my eyes at a lot yeah i do uh this isn't something that i try to think about and i try not to judge it either um but sometimes i can't help it uh does this strike you as like when i saw the trailer i thought like okay rupert ever decided i would like an academy award uh for uh, acting preferably and since nobody's going to cast me in this I'm going to have to do it myself and I don't mean to be quite so cynical but like I don't every once in a while I get that vibe I don't think it's specifically an Oscar that Rupert Everett cares about I doubt he cares but I think there is a, a sense of what you said uh, him saying I deserve to play this kind of starring role sure no one is giving it to me okay so I'm gonna but apparently he's been trying to get this made for like 10 years okay um and um I don't know if this is true. I just like reading the IMDb trivia pages mm-hmm. as the listeners know by this point. Um, standard disclaimer. But um, apparently like 10 years ago when he was first going to make it, Colin Firth was like, yeah, I'll be in it. Mm-hmm. And then he tried to get it made for 10 years, often by telling people Colin Firth has signed on. Yeah. He never officially had it. And then he got the funding and he was like, guess what we're doing this. And Colin Firth, for his friend's sake, had to sort of rearrange his schedule yeah. <laughs> to be in it. So it seems like a good friend, Colin. He's Burke. like, who are you again? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Weren't you going to play Dr. Claw in uh, the Inspector Gadget movie? Oh, yeah. Is that who you think of? I, I always go first to my best friend's wedding. Oh, that, absolutely. I wanted yeah. to go to one that, like, yeah. it'd be, I like it. I like that Colin Firth, that that's the first place his mind yeah. goes. But anyway. I'm trying to think what else. Um... What else do you know Rupert Everett from? The Importance of Being Earnest, definitely, I remember... I mean, My Best Friend's Wedding is definitely the big one. And then there's... Is it called The Next Best Thing? Oh, where I never it's him saw and that. Madonna, I yeah, believe. that's right. I yeah. forgot about that. I um, saw that one. But yeah, I'm... The Importance of Being Earnest and is then, I the mean, first one I saw in the theater that he was in. 
that was probably is he does he play Marlowe in Shakespeare in Love? Uh, oh, that's right, he does. Yeah, I, I do think of that quite a bit. I forgot that that's him. Yeah, because that's also just a glorified cameo, right? It's not a very big. Yeah, I mean, not unlike discussion of Marlowe in general. Yeah, it's not much <laughs> more than a glorified cameo. Uh, and then third up for me, and then we'll toss it over to you. I saw a new film, or at least a film that's uh, new on an American shores. Uh, it's a British film called A Prayer Before Dawn, okay. which is uh, a true story based on a memoir of the same name uh, about a guy named Billy Moore, who's an Englishman who lived in Thailand and worked as a professional kickboxer. Then, uh, and this is all, this whole part is not in the movie. The movie oh, this thing. Yeah. I saw a trailer for this and it looked very intense. That, that it is definitely heavy. Um, He's a professional kickboxer in Thailand. He somehow gets involved and in, gets uh, addicted to heroin and then gets arrested with some heroin on him and gets sent mm-hmm. to a uh, Thai prison, um, which is uh, not a pleasant experience. Not that American prisons are you right. know, club meds or whatever. but yeah. uh, um, I'd say by and large, try to avoid prison if you can. Yeah. Um, uh, and then eventually, then so he is in prison. He's continuing to... Uh, to use heroin however he can get it even if it means uh working as an enforcer for the heroin dealer mm-hmm. uh like at one point the heroin dealer is like you don't have any more money you I, I can't sell you any heroin but i'll give you some if you'll beat the shit out of these guys who were uh who were causing me problems and so he just does that um and then eventually finds the prison boxing program and sort of gets his life back together in prison but the the storyline of him discovering like the movie's almost a full two hours and the discovery of the prison boxing world is at the one hour mark mm. and there's almost no kickboxing before there's a little flash as a prologue but m- the first hour of the movie is just misery mm-hmm. it's just pretty much starts with him other than that sort of prologue it's pretty much starts with him gets getting arrested and then it's just a tour through hell yeah. of this of this particular prison um and the way the movie is is shot it, it seems like particulars of narrative and even later the particulars of kickboxing itself you're not going to learn much about kickboxing by watching this movie mm-hmm. are discarded in favor of just that sort of uh hyper like impressionistic physical filmmaking lots of close-ups very short uh short shots Mm -hmm. um moving camera it's very intensely physical lots of close-up of skin the uh, the entire first opening like i said there's the the opening uh i think wordless opening is just him getting uh rubbed down and oiled down before a before there's more time spent on the rub down on the oil down than there is on the actual boxing match. There uh, are a lot of, I would say there are more reasons than not why I would not want to be a kickboxer. Having to be oiled down is, uh, <laughs> I'd say at the top. Yeah. It's just like, uh, I hate having stuff on my hands, like much less. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I gladly let myself be sunburned rather than like, if I don't have the right kind of, uh, oh. sunscreen. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go on. Yeah, I don't have anything to say about about sunburn. Um, I don't like it, but I burn very easily, and I always forget sunscreen. Mm. Um, 
plus I never have, I never, I can never seem to use enough sunscreen for my enormous nose. The <laughs> listeners don't know what I look like. I do. I have an enormous nose. Um, I think I have a bulbous nose. You um, got, uh, what can only be described as the back's nose. Yeah. Oh, yes. All the backs have yeah. this nose. Um, it's not exactly Carl Malden. I was going to say it's not it's, WC fields, but one yeah. way or the other. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, prominent. Let's say the, it prominent. Okay. I have a prominent nose and it always seems to get sunburned. Um, anyway, so yeah, this movie, um, again, it not particularly interested in kickboxing. It's more of an, uh, like I was saying, it's like an impressionistic tour of hell, uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in this, um, in this Thai prison. And it's, uh, based on a true story. Um, uh, I feel like it would have to be. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm glad I watched it and I definitely came, came, uh, uh, came away being impressed by, um, I'm forgetting the filmmaker's name now. Uh, it's, it's John Stefan. Sauvin Sauvier Sauvier uh, John yeah Jean-Stéphane Sauvier Sauvier um, I definitely came away impressed with his dedication and um, uh, his his aptitude with um, non-actors which the main the main guy is an actor he, I think he was I think he was one of the guys in the band in Green Green Room. Correct. Yes. Right. Yes. I know he was in Green Room, mm-hmm. um, uh, and he's terrific. But mo- most of the most of the rest of the cast are just actual former prisoners of hmm. uh, you know Thai pr- uh, Thai convicts, I guess. Um, uh, it's definitely worth a watch. But like you said, it is it's heavy. Yeah. It is unrelenting. Um, and yeah, some of the stuff that he witnesses, uh, and that happens to him in, in prison, like say when he owes some money to some, some drug dealers, um, they don't just threaten to kill him. If you don't pay, they hold him down. And one guy takes a syringe, pulls some blood out of his own arms arm, and then says, I have AIDS. Do you want it? And holds the syringe up to Billy's neck and says, you know, that's what's going to happen to you if you don't pay us. That's, uh, that's, that's some rough stuff. That's a day in the life of Billy Moore, I guess. Um, yeah, really intense stuff. Uh, okay. I would say worth checking out as long as you know what you're getting into. Right. Or if you just like prison boxing movies, which is a subgenre of its own. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I guess it is. Um, uh, you're up. So, uh, real quick, I did want to say your, your use of the word, kickboxing which i recognize is what he was but uh-huh. i'm reminded of an old old letterman top 10 list and it was top 10 things heard in line for kickboxer 2 <laughs> starring I never saw Cla- i've only seen the first kickboxer uh, yeah it's and but i think letterman and everybody found it hilarious that there was a second one yeah. and so i i only remember a couple of them but one of them was uh I don't know which I like more, the kicking or the boxing. So that's one. <laughs> and then the one of them was, I hear there's a lot of kickboxing in this one. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, have, you, have you seen Kickboxer, the first one? Oh, when I was young, yeah. Because long time he, ago. He um, essentially chops down a palm tree with his shin, right? I think so, yes. He, like, practices the, the, the classic, yeah. which there is a scene in this movie of practicing the kick. They're doing mm. it the normal way with pads, yeah. not a palm tree. But I think Jean-Claude Van Damme kicks the thing so much that the tree falls over. 
<laughs> it relents, David. That's, that's, that's the way we look at it. Um, okay. So, um, yeah, this is a film that I mentioned uh, last week, but I was under embargo, so I couldn't talk about it, but I wanted to, which is um, Chris White's uh, Operation Finale. And I wanted to say, first off, that somebody in the comment section of our uh, Nazi episode uh, brought up the HBO film Conspiracy, which I wanted to. I meant to. Uh, it's a very interesting oh, so you film. Seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was aware of it. I'd never seen it. It's really fascinating. And I think it really brings up... Uh, some really interesting questions. Not that this is the movie I'm talking about, but I did want to briefly mention like, because there, you know, it's, it's essentially, it's like 12 angry men. Like it's just a bunch of guys sitting around a table for two hours and they're, they're talking about the logistics of the final solution. So of course, Eichmann plays a big role played by Stanley Tucci. And, um, and so, but there is there's like one guy in there. He's not the lead, but there's one guy in there who really doesn't want this to happen and he doesn't like the idea of it. But he kind of realizes this is literally going to happen no matter what. I can I can uh, protest. I can do whatever. If I protest, I'll probably be killed. So all these people are going to die and either I could be dead too, or I could be alive. And if they're going to die anyway, why not just stay alive? Mm. You know, it's a very, it's, it's an interesting, uh, dilemma, you know? Um, yeah. Like, Cause it's you, certainly easy to say now what you do. Sure. Of course. In the moment. Yeah. Because people can rationalize things. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting movie. It's, it's, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, one of our listeners commented on it. So, uh, yeah. So operation finale directed by Chris White's and it's about the, the, the mission to wait, did I say yes, operation, uh, the mission to, um, abduct, uh, Adolf Eichmann in Buenos Aires in 1960, 61. And, uh, try him for war crimes in Israel. And he was a very, you know, a very high ranking Nazi official. And so this is like something that, uh, Israel really wanted. And so they send in, they put to put a team together and then send them in, send them in and they abduct him. And then they just kind of have to sit on him for a while before they can take him to Israel. And so, uh, the the leader of the team is played by Oscar Isaac, and then Eichmann is played by Ben Kingsley, and it's fine. There are things that I really like about it. I think performance wise, it's really good. But throughout, it just reminded me of other movies that I think are a little bit better. I would say you could watch, and this sounds negative, given that I just said that I don't love this movie. But um, I feel like you could watch this in Valkyrie in the same night and you got a pretty good idea of a certain way of portraying the war uh-huh. um, where it's not necessarily schlocky it's it certainly isn't Schindler's List uh, or Munich which I'd say it's it's probably trying to be a little bit closer to um, but it just seems to fall short at times the 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 script, I think specifically the first half, I would say is, I won't say schlocky, but it's fairly mundane. Like there are moments where the Oscar Isaac character, clearly they're trying to give him some kind of Mm -hmm. depth or, or different dimensions to him. And so 
they have him working with like an ex uh, an ex girlfriend of his or something like that, and everyone seems to know their their situation. And so she's like, "What the hell does this have to do with anything? This just seems like a shoehorned in." attempt to like mm-hmm. make his care add other layers to his character uh which is similarly how i felt about the film argo which this also reminds me of but this isn't as good as um uh, and like with ben affleck's character where you know it's him like oh he's an absent father and all that and she's like look i get why you're doing this but at the same time like when there's a sense of urgency you're now just distracting from that and so it's it's stuff like that that kind of bothers me, and in the end, it just felt uh, not particularly engrossing. Um, ben Kingsley's really good as as Eichmann, but we've seen Eichmann played in other things. There was a, a TV movie in the '90s called The Man Who Captured Eichmann, and Robert Duvall, my favorite actor of all time, played him and did a great job. So um, it's. I'd say in some ways it's worth seeing, but I really don't think it's particularly um, intriguing. So I haven't seen it, but um, uh, how is how is Nick Kroll? Because He's, I remember not loving Loving, right? right? Which I didn't see. Okay. But I feel like he could be a good, like, non-comedic actor. Yeah, I think he's pretty good. And and his character is, he certainly is not a comic relief. There is no comic relief in the film. But his character does, like, have a couple of wisecracks here and there. And I think he does a, a fine job with it. Um, I tell you who actually jumped out at me as far as the, the supporting cast. Um, I believe his name is Michael... Aronov, who is the primary uh, interrogator of uh, Eichmann, and I thought he was marvelous. I really, really liked him because it's just so many of these supporting characters. They they do some, you know, they all kind of have their part to play, but his is the most well defined, and I think you really get a sense in his performance. And this is what I'm talking about: like rather than try to cram some hackneyed stuff in there they just relied on the actor to bring the weight of what this character has lost and what he realizes is at stake um and i think he does a really great job and and there are still there's still power in this story of course uh and so you know if you're interested in the history of it i think you'll you'll be you'll find it interesting but i i just don't think it's that great of a film Looking at this on IMDb, I'm seeing that, you know, who else is in it is um, Billy Lynn himself, Joe Alwyn. Yes. Who I think is a name that we're about to know by the end of the year. Okay. he's in the new Yorgos Lanthimos movie, The Favorite. Oh, okay. And he's in Mary Queen of Scots, which is, I think, one of the big movies coming out. Okay. Uh, stay tuned to this week's regular <laughs> numbered episode. Indeed, You'll hear yes. more about this stuff, but I, I feel like... Uh, I don't know if he's good in Operation Finale, but I feel like that's a name we're going to know. I think he is pretty good, and he plays Eichmann's uh, son, and so he's kind of a, a force for for evil uh, in this. But at the same time, it's also like he definitely believes Nazi things, but what really seems to be driving him is that, like, hey, my father has gone missing. And I need to get him back. And so um, it's not a character we sympathize with, but... Uh, we can at least understand it's very clear what is motivating him. And I think, and I think it's a, it's a good performance, but again, just the film is, I'd say largely forgettable. Uh, doesn't it seem like every year there's a movie like this, that like this doesn't really have any, um, 
awards potential. Right. But it comes out in late August, early September, kind of as a way of saying, like, get ready, everybody. The season of this kind of thing is coming. Yeah, yeah. Here's a taste. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. It's just a little appetizer. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's some of these every year. And sometimes they're good. Like, I, the one I always go back to, which, like, I think two years ago was The Light Between Oceans. Which sure. Is, which, that was definitely in this slot. I think it was, like, a Labor Day or whatever uh, opening. Yeah. And I thought the movie was great, but it was, it felt like. It's almost as like if they're saying, primer. like, all right, enough fun. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Summer's over. Yeah. It's time to get to work. Yeah. Um, but don't worry, you'll have Aquaman in November. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, that's for the main episode. Uh, moving on. Okay. So I. All right. Now I had seen going all the way back to this filmmaker's beginning. I'd seen Funny Haha. I loved Computer Chess. Mm-hmm. You loved, liked Computer Chess. Oh too, yes. Right? You were mixed on results, right? I was. Yes. I. You know. I think if I were to watch it again, knowing what it is, I think I'd probably like it more. Um, but. Of what I've seen, including Computer Chess, which is brilliant, Andrew Brzezowski's newest film, Support the Girls, is my favorite of his films. Okay. Uh, it is so terrific, and, and it's something that I really look for in in terms of something feeling, by the end of it, feeling huge, but actually, like, on screen, everything is kind of very intimate and personal and small. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's not... It's never grand, and yet you feel like you've seen something grand when it's over. Yeah. Um, and all that in a, in a comedy, a very funny comedy, too. Um, Support the Girls is so great. Regina Hall, um, who obviously is not new to movie screens, but I feel like between Girls Trip last year and this, like mm-hmm. I hope we get a great Regina Hall movie every summer. That's what I want <laughs> now. Uh, Regina Hall stars as the manager of a... Uh, Hooters knockoff type of uh, bar and grill outside of Austin called Double Whammies. Okay. Um, owned by a character played by James the Grow. Uh, hey, all right. Is, um, definitely, he's uh, a tertiary character in the movie and is not doesn't have much depth to him. But it's a great. I, I, it's always nice to see him. That James the Grow is one of those names where if it, uh, when it's in the opening credits, you're like, all right, well, uh, yeah. I'm in for something here. Like. <laughs> At least one part of this is going to be good, <laughs> yeah. Because James Agro is in it. That's how I feel about. Uh, we should have we done an episode on that kind, those kind of actors, like actors. Like I don't think we actually officially have. We've we've commented on like when when actors like that pass away, uh-huh. um, but haven't done a whole episode about it. Yeah, we should do an episode on actors like like who, James Rebhorn is uh, is one that that's uh, a great one. Yeah, actors and actresses who like if they're in a movie, you know at least part of the movie is good. Yeah, Stephen you know, Root is one of those for me. Like, okay. I, anytime I see it, it's just like I know he's not going to be in it a lot, but I'm going to enjoy it when it, where he is. Um, uh, you know who I like? Who I feel like isn't as, in as much movies as she used to be? Jane Adams. Um, yeah, and she was in. Uh, I, I liked Brigsby Bear. I think I think you and I both liked. Yeah, Brigsby I liked it quite Bear. a bit. Um, but even like she was in that, and I was like, oh great! But then she like isn't in it nearly enough yeah um anyway uh anyway that's not the point yeah the point is we should just actually do that episode um uh regina hall plays lisa the manager of this place called double double whammies uh and it's one of the except for an epilogue at the end it's one of these all in one day Mm -hmm. type of movies Uh, and this is a busy day she's training a bunch of new hires including um uh do you watch unbreakable kimmy schmidt i watched the first season okay so dylan galula who plays um um 
uh, Jane Krakowski's daughter. Oh, okay. Uh, it was very funny. Oh, yes, yes. So she's one of the new hires. There's a group of them. Um, she's training new hires while also starting a, uh, doing a car wash to raise money for the legal fees of one of the other employees. Um, and she's dealing with some, uh, personal stuff in her marriage. And she's also, uh, they had a break in and the cable got knocked out when someone tried to break in and there's a big fight that night. Hmm. And so they're expecting a big crowd. And so she spends all day trying to get the cable fixed. It's one of these, a bunch of shit just happens in one day type of movies. Um, but, uh, it, it, it really feels like, um, cause I, I've been a defender from the beginning of what, got dismissively labeled mumblecore. And that's right. not that that's what this is, but that's the, definitely the scene that Andrew Brielsi came out of. He might be one of the founding sure. mumblecorers, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and him and mumblers and is what they call Joe them. Swanberg and, um, probably our friend, uh, Aaron Katz, I yeah. guess is, uh, in that sort of, uh, inaugural class mm-hmm. of mumblers. Um, and I feel like this fulfills the promise of those kind of movies, which is kind of a, uh, like a, 21st century American take on Italian neorealism. Hmm. Because I think the problem, not that I'm admitting there was a problem, because I like a lot of those mobile movies, but I think the thing that kept them from uh, from being that is because the early, so many of the early mobile films were, um, despite their like lo-fi um, scrappy trappings were unrelentingly bourgeois, I think, hmm. in the kind of characters they would look at. You know, these are generally white characters. Generally, if they didn't have money, they were at least middle class and upperly mobile, right. you know. Um, and so to take that, those sensibilities and, and what he learned there and, and apply it to a group of real working people, you know, it's easy to see like Hooters girls, or in this case, Double Whammy's girls, right. as being like, a homogenous type and something that's dismissive and something that's a joke, especially since Hooters is failing right now. It's this movie couldn't be coming out at a better time when there's been, yeah. uh, in the past week stories about how, uh, millennials strike again. Millennials are killing Hooters. Uh, cause millennials don't care about, I guess that I, I've been in Hooters once, mm-hmm. uh, not to eat or anything. Um, I was, uh, trying to sell ads for my school newspaper and and there was a Hooters in Springfield that was like yeah. independently owned so I went in there to like talk to the manager and, and I was just like I am uncomfortable I, yeah. I just it just felt I recognize that I, I haven't struck on anything new here but yeah. I was just like this feels exploitative to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the weird thing about Hooters is it's not a strip club. And as right. Lisa, the character Regina Hall plays, keeps saying we're a family place. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's, you know, she says, I think it's in the lines in the trailer. She's like, yeah, you're not wearing that many clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is that you're, it's supposed to be a family friendly place. And so, um, Anyway, to apply this sort of ground level lens uh, to people like this, working people, uh, is I think the best use of of uh, the best possible use of the kind of mumblecore mm-hmm. uh, ethos, I guess, uh, or like aesthetic ethos. Um, and so, support the girls is I'll say first and foremost hilariously funny mm-hmm. and a lot of that is down to Haley Lou Richardson, who is great in everything. And she's I feel in like Operation Finale. Ah, um, I didn't know that. Um, but, uh, and here she's, 
she plays Macy, who's like the the uh the, she's the just the one employee there who truly just loves her job <laughs> um, and she's a sort of uh unrelenting font of optimism uh and she it, it, and and a lot of a lot of the laughs uh come from her but i mean there's there's something incredibly humanistic about this movie and about putting a face on not just uh poor or lower middle class working people like like Lisa and most of these other people are um uh, but also on a group of women working in uh, a, uh, a field, I guess, if you want to call yeah. it that, that is um, not often given a lot of respect. But yeah, it's very easily dismissed, but it's like these are still people yeah. and they're still making I mean, choices. Part of the point of their role is objectification, but yeah. like they're, they're, they're people, like you yeah. said. Uh, and I just like, I think my, my I know my, my tweet after support the girls after I saw it was just support the girls and it was just hearts and stars and smiley faces and thumbs up because that's how the movie made me feel it made me yeah. feel so wonderful and happy and joyful and like I really like made friends and gotten to know people and like I really understood it's it's the rare workplace comedy where you really get to sense, get a sense of these people work yeah. you know what I mean like yeah. get a sense of how the how the place operates and the fact you know just I've worked I've never I've never really worked in a restaurant except for uh, less than two weeks once I was a busboy um, but I've worked in a video store and I understand that like it's not all just hanging out and shooting the shit like yeah. there's work that needs to be done yeah. and there's more so in a restaurant with you've got food and you've got booze and you've got the TVs and all this stuff um, uh, it's a really really acutely observed movie that is never not a blast to watch. I mean, some of it's sad, but it's, yeah, it's, it is so wonderful. Two things, David, number one, uh, yeah, the day a movie takes place in like a, in a retail store or something like that, that has carpet. And at the end, and at some point, like a manager says to an employee, it's like, yeah, you can just spot vacuum and then have the employee be like, yeah, of course, that's all I was going to do anyway. What you, <laughs> you think I'm doing this whole fucking thing? Are you shitting me? Uh, like, I appreciate the permission, but uh, yeah. you, you didn't need to give it. Um, I would do it all at my video store in Chicago, but as you remember, that one wasn't. Yeah, only the would. first, only the main floor was carpeted. The basement right. wasn't uh, for good reason. Probably a good call. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's where all the form was. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it was, it's not that big. So I would always vacuum the whole thing. Yeah. Um, except for the stairs were carpeted. And I went, yeah, that was always too much of a hassle. Yeah. I would just like, I would just like sweep the stairs really hard. Uh, like, there we I'm go. probably getting it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's the one thing like that's something that I have heard the phrase spot vacuum across multiple States at this point. So I guess <laughs> it is officially like a retail yeah. term and people say it as though that's not what's happening anyway. But, um, okay. So that's, there's that. And then I also wanted to say, David, to the degree that we can do this, I'm willing to say that the current BP it girl is Haley Lou Richardson. Like we oh, have okay. like, I think you're going to go with Regina Hall, but I guess she's been around right. Scary movies like 20 years old at this point, almost 18 <sighs> years old. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, but like whether it be, um, was it edge of 17 edge of 17 yeah and then columbus mm-hmm. and then uh support the girls and then and i thought she was very good in operation finale yeah uh, she's just she hasn't broken through quite yet but i think she will and i want her to because i think she has shown herself to be very adept at a lot of different 
at a range of emotions in a range of genres. And so I feel like I, I really want her to uh, achieve some kind of stardom. And let me just say, it's sort of like, you know, when you're into a band, mm-hmm. right? Before they're popular, they sure. become popular and you're like, I'm super happy that they're popular, mm-hmm. but I also kind of want people to know that I was into them sure. first because I saw a movie called the young Kieslowski at the 2014 oh, right. LA film fest that mm-hmm. she is the second lead in. Um, and so I knew, I feel like I'm trying to look at it and see if I, what did I, if I specifically called out, uh, called her out in my review. Um, but I feel like I knew before anyone mm-hmm. that, uh, we had we had something on our on our hands um with with Haley richardson but i can't even find my review i will i will get back to you the listener about our uh our it boy um it's joe allen i know but that didn't you know what like i guess you're i guess you're correct but i didn't see billy lynn like i feel like i haven't seen enough of his stuff to to declare okay oh wait uh, uh, who are you talking about are you talking about the guy from uh Operation. Operation. Okay, just yeah. making sure. As opposed to the other guy from um, Prayer Before Dawn. Right. Um, Joe something. Right. So, okay, anyway, enough of that. Yeah. Oh, do I have more? Oh, that, yes. that's only one. Yeah. Um, uh, you got a lot of talking to do. I keep I keep uh, distracting you. I'm sorry. Yeah, but I'm still looking to see uh, if I specifically talked about how good... Uh, Haley Richardson, Haley Richardson was in my review. Um, I don't think I did, unfortunately. Oh, boy. Um, oh, well. Uh, all right, so let's move on. This, real quick, I rewatched um, Nanak of the North for the first time in oh, a long okay. time. Um, not even that long, because I watched it when Flickr Alley put it out on Blu-ray five years ago, maybe, because mm-hmm. I reviewed it for the website. Um, and it's just... Uh, it's a fascinating film that I guess I would just like to revisit every once in a while um, because uh, bring out your dead. Uh, we got so many emails <laughs> and one, one email or comment thing on the website yeah. specifically mentioned bring out your dead when the, uh, yeah. when the truck goes by. Uh, I mean, it has been pretty hot lately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, uh, dubious proposition, I guess, Nanak of the North, because yes. I love one thing that I've said. I think there are certain things that I'm sure I said early on in the podcast more than once that I don't stand by anymore. Sure. But one thing that has always been a defining part of how, what I like about movies is, um, the way that they depict things that are a process the way mm-hmm. that, because they're a fourth dimensional art. You can yeah. use just the process of just, that's why like movies about cooking are so fun to me because you can just have a cooking yeah. segment in a movie and seeing the thing come together is just great. And so that's all. I mean, Nanakul North is full of that. Yeah. Blue building or uh, ice fishing or um, uh, like walrus skinning, which yeah. is a, a very gross sequence, but really fascinating because they just like, I don't know if you remember. Oh, yes. They slid it open and then they just sort of like roll it out. Ugh. Like... <laughs> like a, like a tin of Pillsbury Crescent rolls, just cutting the skin off as it goes until what's left. They have a big walrus skin on one side, and then a lump of walrus on the other side. Um, it's disgusting, yes. but it's fascinating. Um, it's been like seventeen years since I. When's the last time you saw it? I said I saw it when they put the Blu-ray out okay, like five right, years right. ago. Yeah, okay, um, yes. And then the last time I saw it before that, I don't think you ever went to this place, and I don't think it's still there. But do you remember when we lived in Chicago? 
there was a LaSalle bank in like Irving Park somewhere Irving, mm-hmm. off of Irving, Irving Park yeah um, that had a screening room in the back I'm not sure who even ran the movies I think they were probably projected from DVD or sure. whatever but they would just show classic movies in this theater that wasn't open otherwise that it was in the back of a bank yeah do you remember that uh, uh, I don't think I've I've ever been there but I remember you telling me about it yes yeah. so I think I saw Anakin in the North there um because uh, it's yeah it's a good fun movie to see on uh, on a big screen sure especially when they're slicing that wall wall is open yeah. um but uh, so that's that that all is like you know it's uh it's heroin for me it's mm. like that's what i like out about movies on the other hand there is the constant condescension yeah. <laughs> the movie is uh so condescending about the very much the like no, noble savage type of thing sure but also kind of i feel like there's some not some there's a lot of like mocking of like they don't understand the white man's technology and like the white man's culture is too advanced or beyond them or yeah. they mar- the they call the trading post the big igloo you know uh, which is something they that they don't, it's not in that tone because it's yeah. just a title an intertitle but um there's constant stuff like that yeah. um so uh it it's very difficult and also there's constant use of the word Eskimo, which I think is generally not uh, uh, accepted anymore. It's not the preferred, no longer the preferred nomenclature. Oh, really? Uh, Inuit. Oh, in, that's right. Yes, word. yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I rewatched Nanak of the North. That's enough on that. And then finally I watched a... Did you see the documentary now episode that's no, like... No, I never... I've oh. never seen any documentary now. You uh, would dig it the most, okay, David. I, I think I you'd love it. And uh, the Nanak of the North episode is laugh out loud hysterical if you are familiar with the film. Um, and then finally I watched the movie that has just been restored. It's from 1977 and the restoration is coming out in theaters at the end of the month, at least in New York and Los Angeles, I think. It's a 1977 French film called Peppermint Soda. Um, that is a uh, young girl coming of age story. It's about sisters, but I guess the younger one is a little bit more the protagonist, but they both are. They're about like eighth and 10th grade mm. age, I guess, are the, the two, uh, the two girls. And I do wonder like, um, do you ever wonder like, well, why, why this movie now? Yes. Um, like, why is this getting restored now? And I, I, I do see in terms of that it's, a young woman's coming of age story. It's written and directed by a woman mm-hmm. and it takes place over the course of a year. I was like, I wonder okay, if this is lady bird. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if like lady bird was like, made someone go, well, if you like lady bird yeah. and then got, you know, maybe it was a patch, something someone wanted rest- restored for a long time. And finally they had a way to sell like, right. uh, here's why you should pay for this to be restored. Cause it's like lady bird. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, however, it ended up getting uh, restored. Um, I'm happy it did because it's a really, really wonderful movie. Um, and like so many coming of age stories, uh, is would probably be seen by. We're just. I haven't seen Eighth Grade yet. You saw it, right? Yeah. Um, but a conversation that's coming up with Eighth Grade that comes up with a lot of. Um, uh, like Moonlight or other stories that are aimed at a, or about a young audience, but American sensibilities, I guess, mm-hmm. tend to get them R ratings. Like, sure. Therefore, keeping, in many cases, keeping the people that might most relate to the movies from being able to see them. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, Peppermint Soda was probably rated G in France. Sure. But <laughs> because they, um, you know, they, uh, uh, I mean, I think the, the thing that keeps going is uh, the, 
the Fifty Shades of Grey movies were rated the equivalent of PG in France. Wow. Because um, they don't care about that kind of stuff, uh, which I think is um, more in line with my way of thinking about... Uh, uh, I always feel like... It shocks me when... I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but I was a kid, yeah. so I know that. Um, it does shock me when parents are way more concerned with sex than violence. Like, I feel like sex, obviously there are certain depictions of sex that are dehumanizing and degrading, and I right. want um, kids being uh, um, exposed to that too young. But violence in general, I think, yeah. is something that is maybe, I feel like it maybe does more damage to an undeveloped brain to see uh, a human body and human life dealt with um, casually mm-hmm. and, and dismissed casually and not not being a sacred thing to me, um, that upsets me more. It upsets me now. Like even as a 35 year old man, I'm like in certain cases, uh, certain depictions of violence, uh, upset me. And yet I also love John wick. So I, I guess I'm able to, it, delineate, I think, but. I think tone has a lot to do with it. Like, you know, it's, yeah, violence bothers me a lot more than it used to when I was younger. Uh, because you know, as I've said before, now I'll watch like when I watch the Meg and I see the Meg swallow someone whole. I'm just like, oh, they're not going to be able, to, you know, not going to be able to show the body at the funeral now. <laughs> like, and just like, oh, that's not what you're supposed to be thinking when you watch yeah, the Meg. Yeah. But I'm older now, and so. Uh, but I think that for me, not that I, not that. I tend to think of it more from the perspective of the, uh, of the performer at this point oh. that like, you know, as horrendous as the gore can be in the violence, like I know that like, well, that is all fake. Right, right, right. Whereas if an actor or likely more an actress, you know, is said, Hey, take off your clothes for this film, you know, the, on, on, um, Red Letter Media, they, as I have mentioned, they regularly watch like really terrible movies. And there's this, there was a film, I don't remember what it was, but it was really just, hor- just horrendous. And a woman like gets topless and the guys as they're watching, are like, no, oh, not for this, not for this. <laughs> and that's, and there's a, there's a feeling there, which is like, if an actor is willing to bear themselves to such a degree, mm-hmm. like I want it to be like you said. There's there there's a sacred quality to like human vulnerability. I would say. Yeah, but I don't think I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, ratings have anything to do. No, 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 not at all. It's just you could still show it in a movie. Like you could still rate a movie with nudity PG. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I think kids. I don't think. uh, Obviously, notwithstanding certain types of depictions of sex, sure. But I think in general, depiction of a sexual relationship is not going to scar a kid as much as seeing someone get their brains blown out is, but I, I don't know. I was only, a, I hate the, you're not a parent argument. Cause it's like, yeah, sure. I was a kid. Yeah. And I also feel like this is me getting up my soapbox here. I feel like you'd think that having a kid would make you closer to remembering what it meant to be a kid, mm-hmm. but it feels like it often happens the other way with parents mm-hmm. that they, I think because I, my guess is that it's because there's a, there's uh, a sort of unwillingness to see your kid as a kid like any other. Sure. Because it's your kid. It's something special and yeah. different. Um, and so, like, it's crazy to me, like, that if a movie is going to depict middle schoolers, then it should be full of 
filthy language. That's oh, how no middle schoolers talk all the time. Yeah. And yet I feel like parents are like, oh, my middle schoolers shouldn't see that because I may have been like that when I was a kid, but not my precious little one. You know, yeah. that's the impression that I get about um, what, uh, what parenting does to the brain. That was Ebert's big thing about Mean Creek is that like it's a film that I think middle schoolers and if nothing else, high schoolers could could certainly relate to. And it features some very rough language and some rough actions as well. Um, and she's like, they can relate to this and they might be able to benefit from it as well. Yeah. But it has this stuff like it, essentially the problem with the MPA is just like this content means this rating. And there's right. really not a lot of room for context. You know, no, there's no context at all. And so yeah. I think that's that's the, the problem. I would say that in a way Except I understand there is context in a bad way where um, uh, like the same level of sexual relations between a man and a woman will get an R and a man and a man will get an NC-17. Sure. That's yeah. con- that's that's context that works against, I think, what, what I'd like to see. And I think there's also just the, the contextualizing of like you're making this this act or the, or the fact of nudity, you're making it, you know, uh, what is it? Verboten? Is that, is that forbidden? Yeah. yeah, Okay. You're making it that, which makes it so much more tantalizing, but also like tantalizing mixed with like, Oh, well, hang on a minute. Like you're, you're making it almost anti-normal. Um, and, uh, and suddenly people get, I don't know. I feel like a kid could get more intrigued yeah. than if you were to just, you know, have it be like a PG 13 or something like that. At the same time, again, it's yes, I, I do not have children. I was a child and I do know that like my, my brother and I played guns uh-huh. before I knew really what sex was or anything like sure, that. Yeah. And so I think showing, Put I also in, played ninja it, a lot because we grew up in the '90s, the age of the ninja. Of, of course, I guess late '80s because there was Amer- 80s. American Ninja, the American Ninja series. <laughs> Michael Dudikoff. Well, Michael, Michael Dudikoff in American Ninjas one, two, and four. Um, <laughs> that's my favorite fact. Yeah. That he stepped away from the series and was like, guys, <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Uh, hey, uh, is his tail between his legs? Okay, good. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, but no, I do think that there's uh, that there's something to be said for like, if a kid doesn't yet, cause like I said, context is important. It's important for an audience member to be able to contextualize for themselves. Yeah. And a kid does not understand what sex is. So like introducing, uh, introducing that into their lives before they're able to make any kind of sense of it. Even if it's basically like, I have a general idea of what I desire. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I can understand that a little bit more, but at the same time, yeah, it's the, I've, I don't know. We were raised in the eighties. We watched not just violence, uh-huh. but like some of the most horrendous violence My parents we've ever strict. seen. Uh, so I don't know what I, I don't know what I saw, but I did see glory at a young age. Sure. And, um, that's got a lot of gross stuff in it. I mean, yeah, it's war violence. I feel like that's one where I want it to be as R rated as po- I mean, not R rated, but like I want it to be as, as gory as possible yeah. because it's really horrifying. Now, I'm saying we, we should move we're on. Way off topic, especially at this point I've, we've given, or I've given away the wrong impression of peppermint soda by, by focusing this specifically on sex because right. there's not really any real sex in peppermint soda. There's just a lot of talking about sex okay. and part of, um, 
uh, I think part of the joke, but also something that's very well observed, because apparently the uh, Diane Curis uh, is the, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that name right, um, Curis, I'm not sure how you say her last name, uh, is the writer-director, and, and apparently, so the movie takes place in 1963 and 64, came out in 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, when she was, when it was 1963, slash 64, she was right in between the ages of her two protagonists, which so mm-hmm. is like split it into two. And I think one thing that, like I said, a lot of the com- comedy comes from this, but it's also a very close observation and a very familiar observation uh, that will be familiar to anyone who was a kid, uh, is that two or three years in difference now, at this age, I'm friends with people who are more than two or three right. years older or younger than I yeah. am. But when you're when you're in tenth grade, someone one year seventh grade, yeah. oh like, sure, they're a kid, yeah. You know, um, like that, that's the thing that cracks me up about. Um, I always thought of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers as kids stuff, but which I meant my younger brothers. Like mm-hmm. they're essentially the same generation, isn't they? Are the same generation. We're yeah. all my all my siblings and I are millennials. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're millennials. I don't know if you read our friend Todd Vanderwerp's great Fox.com article. Stop calling teenagers millennials uh, because <laughs> because yeah. millennials are in the twenties and thirties. Um, uh, but anyway, um, the idea that because I was born a few years before my brothers, mm-hmm. like. Uh, I wasn't into Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. That was kid stuff. Uh, It's so close. It's so razor thin. Oh, it was, It's like I'm talking about Dora the Explorer or whatever that I was way too old for. But it is interesting because, I mean, I remember Saturday morning cartoons. Like, I loved Batman the Animated Series and then X-Men. Power Rangers came out, and I did feel like I was too old for it. Yeah. Like, I think it was skewing towards younger, but not that much younger. Not that much. But at that age, two years can make a huge difference. I'm sure there are people our age exactly who were Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Probably, yeah. Um, we just maybe were on a, into different things at that time. Yeah. But anyway, back to... Uh, okay, we've talked too long about other stuff. Peppermint Soda is really, really great. Uh, check it out. I'm sure that this restoration means that there's a Blu-ray coming out at some point. Um, I'll go back to the Ladybird comparison, or I should compare Ladybird to this as opposed to the way around. Um, like I said, it takes place over the course of a year, and like Ladybird, it has... Um, more of an emotional narrative arc than a narrative mm. narrative. You know yes, what I mean? Yes. There's not, there's not really a story so much as basically the movie is, a, it's very episodic, uh, by nature. Um, so much so that, uh, the director even sort of fades out and fades in, in between each sort of like as a, as a way of saying like, okay, now, uh, that, that short story is, it's a bunch of short stories in these two girls lives. Right. Most of the, the younger one, um, uh, over the course of a year. Uh, it's incredibly funny actually. Um, and, uh, it's, it's very, it's very, there's, uh, uh, it also has a lot to say, I think about school in a way that is negative. I think it, the movie sees school as a place where you learn how to, the do's and don'ts and the dangers of socializing with other people. Mm -hmm. The idea of actually learning the subjects that are in your textbooks is almost a joke to the movie. None of these girls cares about their studies and all of the faculty members are for one reason in different ways, but for one reason or another, uh, completely effectless and, um, uh, figures of mockery uh, and one of them so there's like the headmistress and the older sister is like she has a bathroom pass and she's like um, 
running to the bathroom and then she comes on the corner and the headmistress walk is it like and so she like stops and starts walking like at a normal pace <laughs> and then the headmistress is like where do you think you're going she's like i have a bathroom pass and she's like all right and then she starts walking and she's like well hurry up <laughs> there's no way to do do right by this headmistress yeah. is the is the running joke mm-hmm. of, of the movie um so so good peppermint soda okay um which is not the literal translation um of the title which is uh diabole mente which is like devil mint okay anyway but peppermint soda is a drink that they drink at the cafe got it uh anyway it sounds terrible to me <laughs> but i'm not, I'm not a big <laughs> I know, peppermint guy yeah it sounds gross uh all right what did you watch i finally got around to seeing mission impossible fallout and I don't have that much to say about it. Um, I will say that by the time I got around to seeing it, it was really pumped up uh, by the people that I talked to and reviews that I've read. It is very good and occasionally great. Um, I really liked it. I think it's at the moment in my top 10 of the year. I think cool. it's number 10. Um, but I might be wrong. It might not be. And so... Um, uh, based on the the discourse on film Twitter mm. Twitter I won't be surprised to see this movie in people's top tens at the end of the year based on how much people love it and I and I think I don't understand the level of love for it like people say like well it's it's a little bit darker than the other ones and it's like okay I uh, yes uh, I guess I see that and it's all about you know the it's called fallout it's all about the 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 unintended consequences of you know, uh, trying to save the world, which is while you're doing that, you could cause something else to happen over here. Okay. That's fine. Uh, but it doesn't really bring anything new to even that conversation. Um, there are a couple moments where I feel like they're going to like kill off some important supporting characters. Uh, and then they don't. Uh, and I was, of course I would have been sad to see them go, but I also thought like I went in having heard how dark it was. And I thought like, holy shit, are they about to kill this person? Cause you know, I mean the first mission impossible starts with his whole team being decimated mm-hmm. and wouldn't it be interesting if after all these years, now that we have an association with these people, if they started to be decimated, like that would be really terrible, uh, but effective. Uh, but it doesn't really do that. Um, I think where it excels is showing that Ethan hunt is finally getting older and Tom Cruise is getting older. And just this idea that like, just because he wants something, there is a rather, there's a very important moment where there's a helicopter chase and he is chasing somebody else, but his helicopter is like in really bad shape and, and he's about to lose altitude. And he says like, he goes, no, 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 not while, not when I'm this close. And it's just like, and it's clear this idea that like he and his whole team operate on this idea. It's like, no, we want this. And mm-hmm. because we want it and because we're on the side of what we think is right, that's enough. Now, the problem is the film often shows that it is enough. Um, and maybe that's not a problem. It's an action movie. It's fine. But I like the idea that just because what is this? Uh, oh, Thanos says this in Infinity War, this idea of like being sure that you're right and willing to fight and die for this cause. And then you lose like mm-hmm that to me would have been so much more effective. Um, but I actually think that the film is just a standard mission impossible movie, which is not a, which is not a bad thing. The series is very reliable, but I think for me, 
the film is not does not come close to three or five. Um, but I was glad I saw it, and I was glad I saw it in the, uh, on the big screen. But I think it might have been pumped up a little bit too much for me. Uh, in terms of killing people off, I feel like, and I'm outside the franchise at this point. I yeah haven't seen these movies for years. Um, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen most. I haven't seen half of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like at this point, uh, a Mission Impossible movie without Ving Rhames would be almost as impossible as a Mission Impossible movie movie sure. with Tom Cruise. I feel like he's... Yeah. And Simon like Pegg has become that as well. But I feel like people... I feel like people care a lot, and they should, that Ving Rhames is the only person besides Tom Cruise who's been in all six. Yes. Uh, Was he in all six? Was yeah. he in the second one? Yeah, he's in the Okay, second. all right. Yeah. Yes, okay. Uh, all right, um, that's it for movies. You had some TV to discuss? I, I did, yes. Um, so, first off... Um, I just watched the. I have a love and hate, a love hate relationship with Dimitri Martin um, sure. as a as a comedian. So I watched his his special on Netflix. Uh, it's called The Overthinker, and it's interesting. The reason that I like, I seldom laugh out loud at him, but some of his jokes are undeniably brilliant. They might be smarter than they are funny. They are clever. He's a remarkably clever comedian, and there's nothing wrong with that because he. There are times when he gets you to see something in a different way, and you're like, mm-hmm. "Oh shit, I didn't even think of that." And a lot of the great comedians do that. Um, but there are moments where you just feel like he knows he's clever and is trying to play that up, and so that's that's frustrating. But it's it's not a bad special. Um, I've been watching comedians in cars getting coffee. I wad, I, I wrote a, an article about it recently, yeah. um, and despite. Jerry Seinfeld's like occasional moments of, you know, curmudgeonly, uh, tendencies. Uh, it's still very funny and still enjoyable. I, I watched, he had Brian Regan back on and, uh, watching the two of them go back and forth is, is funny. I do find that I think Jerry, you know, he has, it's called comedians, comedians in cars getting coffee, but he will often have comedic performers on mm-hmm. And I think, and while I, he undoubtedly gets along with these people, I think when he's dealing with a comedic performer like a Tracy Morgan or somebody, somebody that's an actor that's very good with comedic roles. Um, Tracy Morgan was a stand-up, wasn't he? I uh, I believe, yeah. I mean, he's he has done stand-up, but yeah. I feel like in the public consciousness, I think he's more of a performer. Like we knew him from SNL and 30 rock and that sort of thing. Um, at least I don't think he is quite as seasoned as some of the other people that Jerry has had on. And, but I, and I do think that like the tone of those episodes are very different. Like when you see him just go back and forth with Brian Regan, uh, it's very different than like with somebody like a, a Tracy Morgan where Jerry feels, seems to feel most of the weight on him. Um, but it's still an interesting show. Um, I still think, I know you never watched it and I don't blame you, but the, uh, um, the Obama one where Jerry had to carry all the weight. Yeah, I'm still, sure he still, in, uh, in terms of comedically, yeah. he still ended up getting some great, like, the, Oh, I have no doubt. Yeah. One of the funniest things ever on Queens of cards getting coffee for me is from the Obama one. When Obama just says like, uh, offhandedly, he's like, uh, Oh, did I mention? Uh, did I tell you that I played golf with Larry David? And Jerry Seinfeld goes, "No, but then we don't talk that that often." 
there is something, you know, there are moments when it, like, Jerry makes jokes that are a reference to, honestly, how big and famous he is. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it puts me off, but it does, there's something about, like, I don't think a lot of performers would feel that comfortable joking about the president uh-huh. in front of the president. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, all right, fine, whatever. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then lastly, I did watch all of disenchanted. That's what I spent a lot of disenchantment. my disenchantment. Pardon me. You watched all of it and couldn't get the name right. I saw uh, two ads in entertainment weekly and I know the, Oh yeah. It's, I don't know what it is like, um, because I think of the movie enchanted right. and then like, I don't know anyway, but yeah, disenchantment. Um, gosh, it is, I'd say, worth watching. It's definitely more serialized than what we're used to from Matt Groening. Okay. Um, and so I like that. I think a lot of its humor is obvious. Mm. And, you know, some of the best stuff about, like, Futurama and The Simpsons in its heyday is that you did not see some of those jokes coming. Like, I, I was thinking the other day about the episode where Homer wants to be Flanders' best friend, and there's that image that has been used in memes and stuff of him just, like, coming through the bush. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. you would not have predicted that. Um, yeah. And whereas this, you see a lot of it coming, and I feel like the, the characters themselves aren't that interesting. Um in the role of the king of dreamland, John DiMaggio is mm. kind of doing this New York thing, but his, his cadence occasionally falls into like Jackie Gleason. And he's usually at his funniest when he's doing that type of thing. Um, and there's just like little uh, fun, little one liners where she's, you know, the main characters is the princess. And so she's talking like, like you don't know everything. It's like, like what about that yelling tax? And he goes, it came back to haunt me. <laughs> and just so like, okay, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, there's a jester that only ever has one line, which is, Oh no. And it's whenever he is thrown out a window or like it's implied that just, he, he's always just there at the worst time. He's always there to do his job at a time when nobody wants him there. And they will like, they'll do a trap door and, and it's Billy West being like, Oh no. <laughs> and then to me, the funniest thing, is that like the the court magician or sorcerer or whatever you want to say, a wizard. Um, he's been working on all these things, but the most successful thing he's, he has is a horse that can laugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but and the laugh, the laugh is not like a, it's not that. It's just like, it's that. And it's hilarious, especially because they, they do it where like they'll reveal like his teeth as he does it. And he just shows up and just gives this dumb guffaw. And it makes me laugh every single time. And, uh, but by and large, it's, it's a show that is much more interesting in its serialized storytelling that it is, than it is amusing. I do think it definitely has an eye towards modern politics, um, but doesn't really do anything with that either. Um, I'm interested to see season two, um, especially because this one ends on a cliffhanger, but by and large, I would say, and I had heard that it wasn't that great before. And so my expectations were pretty low. It was enough to keep me watching. Um, but I would say it's not, it's not amazing. I don't necessarily recommend it. 